Good morning, church. <clears throat> so today's scripture reading is going to be 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, and um, 35 to 49, and 58. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ, Christ have been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the only body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or, some, or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory for the moon, of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, be became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust and so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Morning, church. If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at the Bridge Church, and it's great to be here with you today. So this year, we have been going through the story of the Bible together as a church. And we've been seeing throughout the year, but especially these past few weeks, that the story of the Bible isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago and makes no difference now. It's a story that continues today. And all of us today are invited to live in God's story. And something really important about stories is that knowing the type of story you're in shapes your expectations and responses to that story. Knowing the type of story you're in shapes your expectations and responses to that story. So for example, in 2011, there was this Iranian movie that came out. It was called A Separation. It won the Academy Award for Best International Feature Film. And as you may have guessed from the title, it is the story of a marriage that is falling apart and the impact that this broken marriage has on this couple's young daughter. And the title just gives you this sense that the movie is not really going to have a happy ending, you know? And so as you're watching the movie, you have this sense of dread and foreboding. Anytime something happens that, that seems like a bright spot, it seems like things may be possibly getting better, you can't really celebrate because you know it's only setting you up so that the letdown can be even bigger at the end. Knowing how that kind of story is going to end keeps you from being too excited or too hopeful as the story unfolds. But there are other kinds of stories. That's not the only kind of story there is in the world. If you're watching a rom-com, and the couple gets into a fight. Are you actually concerned about this couple? No, because it's a rom-com. You know it's gonna have a happy ending. Either one of two things is gonna happen. Either this couple is gonna work out their problems and get together and be even stronger because of this fight that they had that almost broke them as a couple. Or the couple is gonna break up, but when they break up, they're each gonna end up with someone who's an even better match for them, so they're happier than they ever could have been if they had just stayed in this couple in the first place. Because it's a rom-com, and it's gonna have a happy ending. Any time you're watching a rom-com, even in the, the worst, lowest parts of the movie, you're not too concerned because you know the story is gonna end with, and they all lived happily ever after. Knowing how that kind of story is gonna end gives you peace and stability even when you're in the middle of a super chaotic scene. And today's passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, asks us the question, what type of story is God's story? What type of story is God's story? Or to make it more personal, what type of story are you and I living in right now? Are we living in a story that, that's more like the movie A Separation, where everything is just gradually progressing from bad to worse, and in the end, we're all just going to be miserable and die? Do you, do you feel like that sometimes? Do you feel like you know, even the best moments in life, they're just part of some cosmic joke, so I can't really enjoy them because I know it's going to get worse later on. Life is a tragedy. It's only a matter of time before I'm crushed by the weight of it. Do you ever feel like that? Is that the nature of reality? Is that what life in God's world is like? Or on the most fundamental level, is life in God's world more like a rom-com where we know things are going to turn out well in the end and that gives us balance and stability even when life is at its worst? 
Like, yes, there are genuinely hard times in life, but we can endure through those times with hope and joy because we know things will get better and it's not always going to be this way. Which of those, ending in despair or ending happily ever after, which of those is the most fundamental reality of the universe? Which of those at the most basic level is what life in God's story is really like? And it's so important for us to answer this because the type of story we believe we're living in is going to shape how we see the world. It's going to shape how we live in the world. It's going to shape how we respond to the things that happen to us. And ultimately, it's going to shape the type of person we become. And what Paul is showing us in today's passage is that God's story has a happy ending. God's story has a happy ending. And we're going to look at the reality of the resurrection, the necessity of the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection, and the response to the resurrection. And just a heads up, that last point is basically a conclusion with a special title. So if we're running low on time and we haven't even gotten there yet, it's okay. It's not going to keep us for a long, long time. But before we jump in and look at the passage, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this invitation to live in your story. Thank you that you love us and you care for us. Thank you for speaking to us and teaching us. And I pray that as we listen to your word today, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us, that our hearts would be receptive, that we would respond to you with faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, the reality of the resurrection. Paul, in today's passage, he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth, which Tim talked about last week. Uh, he shared a lot about this church, so I won't give too much background on them. But he's talking to them about the resurrection, because there were some people in their church who were saying there's no such thing as the resurrection. And Paul came in to correct them and fix their teaching. And before we jump in and look at why the resurrection is important for us today, we're actually going to take a step back and look at an even more foundational level, which is that for some of us, I expect the resurrection itself may seem like a crazy idea. Like we just sang in that song, I believe in the resurrection. But do you ever like stop and think about what you're saying when you sing those words? Like what we're saying is that I believe that there was a dead guy who came back to life physically alive again, which to many people in our world seems crazy. Maybe even to some of us seems like a crazy idea. Like hasn't science proved that that doesn't happen? Hasn't science shown us that dead people just stay dead? And if it has, how can a whole religion teach as its central teaching that someone actually did come back from the dead? And, and not just any religion, but our religion. To many, many people in the world, this is an incredibly offensive idea. And I don't know where everyone in this room is right now in our understanding of the resurrection. It wouldn't shock me if there are multiple people here right now who really struggle to believe that a miracle like this could happen. But what Paul is saying in today's passage is that if Jesus did not literally, physically rise from the dead, Christianity is not a religion worth following. Paul is saying if Jesus did not get up out of the grave with a physical body, Christianity is not worth following. And so we're going to start by just looking at the reality of the resurrection. Is this even something that we can believe while still using our minds? And conveniently, that's also where Paul starts his discussion. And so as we look at this, we're going to break this into two parts. First, 
Has science disproved the possibility of miracles, including the resurrection? Second, if it hasn't, is there any evidence that could help us believe that Jesus did have a literal, physical resurrection? You with me so far? All right. So first, has science disproved the possibility of miracles or the resurrection? And the answer is no. Now, many scientists would disagree with what I just said. There are many scientists who claim that science has proved that miracles are absolutely impossible. But what they're doing when they make that claim is they're using a false premise and hoping you don't realize it. Because they're ignoring the fact that science has its own limitations. By the nature of what it is, science is only capable of of testing for natural causes causes that occur in nature. And therefore, it has to limit what it observes, what it measures to natural causes. Miracles, which which count on the reality and presence and activity of supernatural causes, things beyond nature, science doesn't have tools to measure that. You can't do a scientific test to prove whether God exists or whether God is influencing certain events in certain ways beyond our natural realm. Because the scientific tools that we have, the scientific instruments, aren't capable of gathering that data. All they can observe is the natural world. Which means, on a functional day-to-day basis, science is only observing and making measurements about and making discoveries about things in nature. But that's not the same as proving that no other type of cause can exist. If you were to say science can't test for supernatural causes, therefore that proves supernatural causes don't exist, it's like saying this microphone can only pick up audio. It can't pick up video. And therefore, listening to the recording of my voice without a video attached proves that video recording is not possible. It's ridiculous. You're using the wrong tools. You, you cannot get a video using a microphone in the same way that you cannot find miracles using microscopes. You, you can't, the, the equipment is not designed to test for or to collect that type of data and information. You have the wrong tools to get those results. And so to determine whether or not there is a God, to determine whether or not miracles are possible. It's actually outside the scope and limitations of science. You cannot set up an experiment to test the hypothesis that no supernatural cause for any natural event is possible. Again, it's it's like trying to use a microphone to record a video. The tools won't work for the job that you're asking them to do. Which means you can choose to believe that miracles are impossible. You can choose to believe that supernatural causes cannot exist as a cause behind anything we see in the world. But if you're choosing to believe that, you're not choosing to believe that based on scientific discovery. You're choosing to believe that based on faith, just like Christianity believes in God based on faith. And so if you choose to believe that miracles are impossible, that supernatural causes are not possible, you can choose to believe that But again, recognize that's not something that puts you on a higher plane, a better source of knowledge than Christianity. You're actually operating on the same plane, trusting in something that you cannot see and cannot prove, making deductions based on what you're observing from other places, but ultimately trusting in something that you can't see and you can't prove. It requires just as much faith as Christianity. 
because there's no way to prove that belief scientifically. You cannot test for it. There's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. He points out that when scientists claim miracles cannot happen, there's this hidden premise that there cannot be a God who does miracles. We have a slide for his quote that we can pop up on the screen. He says, to be sure that miracles cannot occur, you would have to be sure beyond a doubt that God doesn't exist. And that is an article of faith. But on the flip side, if God did make the world, if there is a God who exists, then there's nothing illogical about him doing miracles, about him raising people from the dead. Can we jump to the next slide? Uh, Yeah, that works. So if you believe there is a God, there is no fundamental barrier to believing in miracles. And again, I realize believing in God requires faith, but it doesn't require any more or less faith than believing God doesn't exist. We have to have faith regardless of what we believe about God. And just as an aside, I'm not opposed to science. I'm thankful for science. I think science is very helpful. I have my COVID vaccine. I don't hate science. I'm not trying to argue that science is bad. I'm just trying to point out that when you accept science as the only possible source of truth in life, you have to ask science to do things that it can't do. And that makes science become dangerous. So use science, appreciate science, but realize that it's limited in what it can do and what it can explain to us. And one of the things that it can't do is explain whether God exists or whether miracles are possible. So science has not disproved the possibility of miracles. Science has not disproved the possibility of the resurrection, but that still doesn't answer our question whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. Because, you know, like day-to-day experience tells us that dead people stay dead. The fact that miracles and the resurrection are possible doesn't mean anytime someone comes and says, this person rose from the dead, we should just automatically believe them and say, heck yes, absolutely. We should still test it. We should still check and see whether there's valid reasons for believing that this is true when someone makes a claim like that. And so what evidence is there for believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And we see Paul give us a couple different points here that point us towards seeing this. First, in verses three and four, he tells us that Christ died and that he was buried. Christ died and he was buried. Now, pretty much any historian, whether they're Christian or not, would agree that this is a historical fact. There's a man named Jesus who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago who was killed and executed as a criminal by the Romans. So if everyone believes that this is true, why is it so important for establishing whether Jesus rose from the dead? Well, here's why. Because if Jesus never rose from the dead, there's a body somewhere. The location of the tomb was well known. The Jewish religious leaders, they set up guards there to protect it from being robbed. Jesus' followers watched his body be buried. People knew where Jesus was buried. If the Romans who executed Jesus or the Jewish religious leaders who had pressured the Romans to execute Jesus, if they wanted to stop the news from spreading that Jesus was alive again, which they absolutely wanted to do, all they had to do is show the body. Because if you see a dead body, you know this person is still dead and not alive again. It would have stopped all the news spreading about Jesus being alive, and everyone knew exactly where to find the body, but no one could show the body itself because it wasn't there. 
And yes, there are theories about where it went, but none of them really hold up. Like some people are like, oh, it was probably grave robbers. Grave robbers came in and stole the body. If that happened, they were the worst grave robbers ever. Because what was the one thing left in the tomb when everyone found it? The clothes that Jesus had been buried in, which were the only valuable thing in the tomb. If it was grave robbers, they went to great lengths to take the only valuable thing in the tomb off Jesus' body, leave it behind, and run away with the worthless thing in the tomb. That's stupid grave robbers, if it was grave robbers. It was not grave robbers. Okay, other theory. Oh, the disciples stole it. Here's the problem with that. Twelve disciples, all of them went through torture and execution for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe you could get one or two people to endure torture and execution for a lie. But if you have 12 people and all they have to do is for one of them to say, it's not true, we made it up, and it will get them out of torture, it will save their life, one of them is going to break. But none of them broke because they knew that it was true. None of the alternative theories for what happened to Jesus' body hold up when they're put through any type of testing or examination. And I realize by itself, the body being gone proves absolutely nothing, but Paul gives us more. He tells us about a series of resurrection appearances that Jesus made. Paul goes person by person through the list of people that Jesus appeared to after he had been dead. If Jesus is appearing to people alive again, that answers the question, what happened to the body? And notice a couple things. First, the people Jesus appears to after the resurrection are the people he knew best. He shows up to the 12 disciples who were the people who had followed him all over, day in, day out for three years, spent every day with him for three years. He appears to his brother James, who grew up with him. He appears to the rest of the apostles, which would have been like his inner group of followers beyond the 12. These are the people who absolutely knew him best. If Jesus had just appeared to a group of random people, if he like showed up right here, right now, we'd have no way of knowing whether that's Jesus. How would we test it? We, we can't know. But the fact that he showed up to the people who knew him best means that he can't fool them. He can't pretend to be Jesus while actually he's someone else. And if you think, oh, well, they were just really gullible, really susceptible. His, his disciple Thomas has the nickname Doubting Thomas because he was so skeptical and so cynical and so doubtful and so practical that he was like, I, I will not believe this. And yet even he believed it when he had this encounter with Jesus. Second, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And he says, as he's writing this letter, most of them are still alive, although not all of them. He's saying, if you were to put this event on trial at court, we could collect hundreds of eyewitness, eyewitnesses to give testimony that Jesus was alive after he was killed. And Paul is essentially telling the people he's writing to, if you don't believe what I'm saying about Jesus being alive, go find these people and talk to them because there are hundreds of them. You can talk to people who saw Jesus face to face after he was dead. There are enough eyewitnesses to convince any jury in history that this event really happened. So where does that leave us so far? One, science has not disproved the possibility of the resurrection. Two, there's really good evidence 
for believing the resurrection is true. Actually, the evidence, I would, I would argue, the evidence is so good that if you want to deny that the resurrection really happened, you need to explain a better explanation for what happened to the body and how did all these people see Jesus after he had been dead. And I realize if you're here and you're a lifelong committed atheist who doesn't believe miracles can exist, this like little short segment into it probably hasn't convinced you that you're wrong and you need to change your views or anything like that. But I hope that this overview has made you a little more open to believing in miracles and the resurrection. If you have more questions about it, please come talk to me after service. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But if you're here and you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus and you believe the resurrection is true and you just feel like, I don't know how to respond when I hear all these, what feel like attacks from the world around us saying it's not possible, I hope this encourages you. Because the Christian faith isn't something where you need to turn your brain off at the door to enter. Faith isn't closing our eyes to all the evidence and, and just pretending that a fairy tale is true. No, faith is about looking closely at the evidence. It's about finding the answer that makes the best sense of it and holding on to it, even though we can't see it, even though we can't prove it scientifically. And so I hope that that's encouraging to you. I hope that that strengthens you in your belief. But I realize there may be another type of person here, someone who says, Eric, I believe the resurrection is true. All the stuff you just said sort of seems a little academic for me. I'm just, I'm curious why this matters for my life. And that's a great question. And it brings us to our second point, which is the necessity of the resurrection. See, Paul's whole point in this passage is that the question about the resurrection is not just an academic question. It's the most vitally important and practical question in all of life. He says in verse three that this is of first importance. He's saying this isn't just something you believe when you become a Christian, and then once you're through the door, you leave it behind and move on to bigger and better stuff. No, he's saying this is, if you're a Christian, this news about the resurrection of Jesus is the fuel that sustains you every single day of your Christian life. We never move on from it. Belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins is the most fundamental thing for us to believe day in and day out if we are Christians. The literal, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most important thing in Christianity. So much so, Paul would say, that if you don't believe that Jesus physically came back to life after he died, you are not a Christian. Paul would say the resurrection is so central to the Christian faith that if you don't believe Jesus physically came back to life after he died, you are not a Christian. But that's not the only reason this matters for our lives today. Paul also says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This word in vain here, it literally means empty. It has no substance. He's saying Christianity as a hobby is a worthless pursuit. There are some people out there who believe Jesus isn't really God, but they enjoy having friends at church. They enjoy having activities to do through the church. And so they go to church as a hobby and it gives them something to do during their weeks. And Paul is saying, if that's you, you are wasting your time, get a better hobby. Because Christianity as a hobby is a lame hobby. There are also other people who, who maybe don't believe Jesus is God, but they think the moral teachings of Jesus are so great that even if Jesus is not God, 
Even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should still listen to what he said because he said a lot of great stuff. And Paul is saying, that's bogus. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this life is all there is, and who cares how you live? It doesn't make any difference in light of eternity whether you follow Jesus' teachings or not. They're all empty. There's no judgment coming. There's no one who's going to stand in front of you at the end of your life and say, good job or bad job. It doesn't matter. Just do what's fun. Paul's saying if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't matter whether you're a good person. It doesn't matter whether you're as evil as Hitler because no one's going to hold you accountable for what you did in this life. He actually goes so far as to say in verse 32, which we didn't read in today's reading, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and there's no resurrection from the dead, the best thing to do in life is to go out and party it up. Eat, drink, have fun, YOLO. Like we think Drake came up with YOLO, but actually Paul was teaching it way, way thousands of years ago before. He is saying, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this life is all you've got. You only live once. Have all the fun you can. Drake stole that from Paul. But, but Paul's whole point is that Jesus did rise from the dead, so how we live now matters. And as if these things themselves weren't big enough reasons for the resurrection to be important for us, Paul tells us that in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. As Christians, one of the biggest things we believe about the death and resurrection of Jesus is that our sin, our, the thing that separates us from God, has been paid for, has been taken care of. We are now given access to God, a new relationship with him because Jesus died for us and rose again. And we typically tend to think in the church that the death of Jesus pays the price for sin because the Bible talks about the wages of sin is death about how blood pays the penalty for sin. So the death of Jesus pays the price for sin. But Paul says, without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness. Now, how does that work? Well, the resurrection is the proof that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was actually accepted by God. See, if Jesus died but didn't rise again, it means one of two things. It means either Jesus himself was a sinner, and therefore his sin was just what he deserved, or his death was just what he deserved for his own sin. Or it means that God refused to accept his payment for our sin. The resurrection is God's proof that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. The resurrection is, is God's proof that the wages of sin, death, has been defeated once for all. The resurrection is God's proof that he truly forgives everyone who trusts in Jesus. The resurrection is vital. It is essential. It is the first importance for Christians. And Paul is so thoroughly convinced of the importance of the resurrection that he says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you ever met someone who, or maybe you yourself think this way, who's like, you know, I love being a Christian. It's so great that even if, even if at the end I die and there, there is no eternity, I just rot away in the grave, being a Christian makes my life so much better right now that I would still be a Christian even though it turned out not to be true. Have you ever met someone like that? Paul is saying that is a terrible, terrible philosophy for life. He's saying Christianity is only valuable if it's true. It's absolutely worthless if it's not. 
It's actually so worthless if it's not true that people who are tricked into believing it deserve our pity. We deserve to feel bad for them because what's happening is if it's not true, then those momentary small opportunities for pleasure that Christianity calls us to to give up for the sake of something better in eternity. If Christianity is not true, those things that we're giving up are our only opportunity for pleasure and joy in, in the scope of our existence. And we're losing out. We're missing out on the only pleasure and joy that we could have. Christianity is only valuable and worthwhile if it's true. I mean, essentially, Paul's argument throughout this entire passage is that if the resurrection never happened, take your Bible, throw it in the garbage, never think about it again. That's what he's, that's what he's telling us. It doesn't make any difference what the Bible says if Jesus is still buried in a tomb somewhere in Israel. Because if Jesus is still buried in a tomb somewhere in Israel, then the world is just a cruel, harsh place where we suffer and then we die and then we don't exist anymore. And if you believe you're living in that type of a story, it's going to lead you to hopelessness. It's going to lead you to despair. It's going to lead you to laziness. Because what does it matter anyway? So let me ask you again, what type of story do you believe you're living in? Does what I just described of hopelessness and despair sound like the story that you often see yourself living in? If so, then I I encourage you, keep listening because Paul's whole argument is Jesus did rise from the dead and that changes everything. And so we're going to look next at the nature of the resurrection. Now, what I'm going to say right here might seem a little off topic, but stick with me and we'll tie it back in in just a second. If I were to tell you that the earth revolves around the sun, what would you say to me? Would anyone be like, no, absolutely not. That's not true. No, I'll be like, of course it does, Eric. Everyone knows the earth revolves around the sun. But did you know there was a time just a few hundred years ago where if I said something like that, you would accuse me of being crazy because five or 600 years ago, everyone knew the earth stays still and the sun goes around us. And that teaching was absolutely, totally, completely wrong, but pretty much everyone accepted it as true. And to stand up and say something otherwise got you labeled as crazy. Now, what does that have to do with our discussion of the resurrection? Well, there's something similar that's happened in the church across the world when it comes to thinking about the Christian hope after death. And so for what I'm about to say, some of you might be, yes, of course, Eric, I obviously, everyone knows that. But my guess is for many of us, it might sound revolutionary. It might seem crazy. So as I go through this next point, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you want to talk to me after service, please come find me. I'd love to talk more with you about it. And here's where I think our teaching has gotten a little bit twisted and warped. If I were to ask you, according to the Bible, what is the great hope for Christians after we die? How would you respond? Now, my guess is pretty much everyone in here would say, we go to heaven. And if I asked you, what is heaven like? We'd probably all have some concept of the fact that it's an awesome place. We'll be happy there. But for most of us, I don't think we have a really clear picture of what heaven's going to be like. Most of us probably picture something like an angel floating on a cloud, playing a harp peacefully all day long, which sounds miserable and boring to me. I don't know about you. Maybe you think of streets of gold because the Bible talks about streets of gold. But when, when you think about what you yourself will be like there, my guess is that most of us would think of ourselves as some type of spiritual beings, where spiritual means 
without a body. So like, think about it this way. How many of you, when you've thought about the streets of gold in heaven, have ever imagined yourself with a body walking on those streets? Like how many of you have ever pictured yourself having a physical foot, setting that foot on the streets of gold? Anyone? A couple, a couple people. But my, my guess is that the more common image is more like we're sort of like ghosts floating along without a body on top of these streets of gold, right? Now, when Paul comes in verse 35 to this question of what the resurrection is going to be like, he answers it quite differently than many of us would. He, his big argument in this passage is the resurrection of Jesus is vitally important because one, it means we will be resurrected too. And two, Jesus' resurrection is the model for what our resurrection will be like. It means we will be resurrected too, and we will be resurrected just like Jesus was. Now, if you think back to the resurrection stories in the Gospels, what's one of the most prominent themes in all those stories? Jesus has a body. Jesus has a body. It's, it's different than his original body because it appears that he can just walk through locked doors and walls, which is kind of cool and crazy, but it's a real body. It's organically connected to his original body. He'll, he'll do things like sit down and eat and drink and look up at everyone and be like, can a ghost do that? He walks up to his friends and says like, here, the mark where the nail went, touch me. You can't touch someone who doesn't have a body. And Paul's whole argument in verses 35 to 49 is that Jesus is the model for what the Christian resurrection will be like. So if you're a Christian, your hope for the future is that what happened to Jesus on Easter will one day happen to you too. What happened to Jesus on Easter, he got up out of the tomb with a body and walked out alive again. That's what the Bible says our hope is if we are Christians. Yes, the Bible promises, or Jesus even promises, that if we're Christians, we will be in his presence the day we die. But that's not the final step. If that's what you think of when you think of heaven, then heaven actually isn't our final hope because we're still dead at that point, right? Like you think about what death is, it's, it's the immaterial part of us, what we would call like the soul or the spirit, being separated from the physical part of us, our bodies. If our bodies are buried in the ground, and our soul or spirit is with God in heaven, then by definition, they're still separated. We're still dead. And it's wonderful because we're in God's presence, but we're still dead. And God's promise throughout the Bible is that death will be defeated once and for all. And that can only happen if the last step for us is life. That the immaterial part of us, our soul or our spirit, comes back into our physical bodies, which have been made new so we can live in them forever, just like what happened to Jesus. Eternity isn't about us floating around without bodies, like angelic beings on clouds. No, it's about us being put back in perfect bodies that don't break down, that don't decay, that don't get chronic injuries that never go away, so that we can live in this new earth that God is creating, a place of perfection and joy and peace, and I realize for many of us, life may be really difficult and the idea of being physically alive again may be scary or tough, but God says it's not gonna be, it's gonna be wonderful. It's beyond our ability to comprehend because the only way we know life right now is as happening in bodies that break down and decay. 
happening in a world that is breaking down and decaying. But the promise is these new bodies, they're going to be the bodies we were always meant to have. They're not going to decay as we get older. They're going to stay strong forever. And we're going to live in them in a place of perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect contentment forever. And I realize there might be someone really observant in here who's like Eric. Look at verse 44. It says we will have spiritual bodies. What are you talking about? Physical bodies. But realize in this verse, Paul's not contrasting spiritual with physical. He's contracting spiritual with natural. The Greek word for natural, it means connected to life in the natural world as opposed to the Holy Spirit. And the word for spiritual here, it doesn't mean non-physical. It means powered and fueled by the Holy Spirit. So a spiritual body is not a body without a body. It's a body that is fueled by the perfect power of the Holy Spirit rather than the broken desires of this world. For those who trust in Jesus, our future, it's a place of healing and blessing and abundance and joy because Jesus is not just a good teacher who has some cool things to teach us about life. He's a savior who conquered death and gives us glory and joy for eternity. That's how the story ends if you trust in him. Life is so much more like a rom-com than you ever realized before, isn't it? And so how does knowing about this future impact the way we live today? Let's look at the response to the resurrection because Paul tells us exactly what to do in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Paul's saying the more deeply we realize the implications of the resurrection. The more deeply we work those into our hearts so that they're not just something we can answer on a test, but they're something that shapes the way we live our day-to-day lives. It's going to give us confidence and stability in living for God today. See, Christianity, it's not a tool for helping us just close our eyes and plug our ears so we can avoid the reality of life and all of the pain and misery that comes with it. No, it's a deeper reality that gives us stability in the face of difficulty. It allows us to face the world head on, even in the most difficult moments, with perseverance and joy. Because just like when we watch a rom-com, we know that it's going to have a happy ending, that it's going to end with us being resurrected and being with Jesus for eternity. And any struggles and difficulties that we face today, no matter how hard they get, At the bottom, they're not a proof that the world really is just a cruel, harsh place where we suffer and die and that's it. No, they're the struggles that make that happy ending so much sweeter when it arrives. The more deeply we let that truth of the resurrection sink into our hearts, the more we'll have the drive to do things for God today because we know that what we do today matters. In the movie Gladiator, Soldiers are lining up for a battle and their commander comes through and he tells his troops as they're preparing, brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And he says that to encourage them to fight with strength and bravery because if you believe that, then you know that what you do today matters. And that's what Paul is telling us here. The more deeply we understand the resurrection, the more deeply we understand the amazing gift of salvation God has already given us, the more we're going to want to live for him today because what we do in life echoes in eternity and we're going to be there to see it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the amazing promises you make us in your word and thank you that they're not just empty promises, but they're true. Thank you for the promise that for those who trust in Jesus, one day we will be with you physically forever in a place of 
blessing and a place of joy. God, I pray that that reality would, would grip our hearts today and shape us to be the people that you've called us to be, that we would be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, the things we do today are not in vain, but they matter. Thank you, God, that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.